Well, we continue to be in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to chapter 9, and Jesus' interaction with three would-be disciples and his words, which perhaps on first read maybe sound a little cryptic to us, but really are just illustrations that help point out to the people expressing desire to be his disciple that they should count the cost and consider what it is to really want to follow Christ. Our text begins uh, in verse 57, it's a short passage. Let me read it for us. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Holy and gracious God, may your Holy Spirit give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that with the eyes of our hearts enlightened, we may know the hope to which Christ has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance among us, and the greatness of his power for those who believe. We pray this in his name. Amen. In our passage from last week, we saw that Jesus' ministry uh, was changing. He was making a transition from his work in Galilee and was now heading towards Jerusalem and his coming uh, confrontation at the temple, really, but with his, his coming death and resurrection. In verse 51, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, which means that like both Ezekiel and Isaiah long before him, Jesus was prepared to endure the coming rejection from both Jews and Gentiles. So to set his face... Uh, as we looked at last week, was to harden it. So kind of like a, a fighter, he was tensed and prepared to take a beating. It's like what he says in verse 62 of our passage today, no one having put his hand to the plow and still looking at the things behind is fit for the kingdom of God. So we will go into more detail about this verse uh, in a little bit, but his basic meaning is that he himself was of singular focus on the work set before him, and nothing could deter him uh, from his intention to come and die for his people. Rejection, uh, as we saw last week, would soon arrive in a village in Samaria that wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And as we saw last week, the reasons for their, their rejection was, they were, they were complex. Even so, in response to this rejection, James and John, who are two future pillars of the church, asked if Jesus wanted them to call down fire from heaven uh, upon that village for rejecting him. And Jesus, well, he did not want that, and he rebuked uh, James and John for even asking about that. And his reason uh, for this is, I think, very encouraging. Even though Jesus is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, which means he's the judge of all. He's the judge. His desire is to redeem humanity. He wants people to come to faith and find life in Him. And the the persistent testimony in Scripture is that God is incredibly patient. 
He is incredibly patient in dealing with, with sin and evil, even as he, he actively restrains sin. And he does judge some things right now. Jesus has not removed his, his hand from the affairs of humanity, though sometimes it feels like he has. And though he does allow humans to rebel against him, he refuses to allow humans to utterly destroy what he made, which of course is the work of the devil and what the devil is ultimately after. This is why I, I do not believe in the end of the world type scenarios like, like secular people have, have kind of put forth in various forms over the last 200 years or so. Even as I do believe that, that God brings an end to civilizations and cultures that certainly feels like the end of the world to those who endure it. So just within the Bible itself, you could just start going through, and it's Sodom, Egypt, the Canaanites, Israel, Judah, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, Jerusalem, again, the Romans, and more recently, the generations that died in the Civil War, maybe especially in the South. When you read descriptions of people who lived through it, it was hell on earth. It was though the world had ended. You can think of the Japanese and the Germans in World War II, let alone Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Ukraine right now, Gaza. So in each of those cases, there is no doubt, as they were currently configured, that those political orders and their world as they knew it ended. It ended. I mean, Atlanta post-Civil War is a completely different place versus pre-Civil War. Atlanta, even as it is in the same geographic spot. And my point is that even as God does judge the world through his son, both now and in the future, his primary purpose, or at least his heart's desire, is to redeem, is to redeem humanity and bring his kingdom to bear over the whole world, which is why you will find God's people and his church in every single place that I mentioned. I mean, after all, our denomination's headquarters is in Atlanta. Well, in verse 57, coming to our own passage today, we come to the first of three interactions between Jesus and, and three would-be disciples. And in each case, Jesus highlights the singular nature of being his disciple. Luke says, as they were going along the road, that is, as they were traveling towards Jerusalem, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. In response, Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's interesting that Jesus uh, did not, in this case, call the man to follow him. The man himself volunteered to be his disciple. And Jesus' response is not literal, but, but figurative. It's not as though... Jesus had no idea where he would sleep at night and so was completely restless all the time. No, his imagery he's using speaks to the nature of being his disciple. The basic idea is that God's people will not be at home in the world. That doesn't mean, as, as so many Christians have mistakenly thought, that we weren't created for the earth but were instead destined for heaven and we can't wait to leave this place. Rather, it speaks to the idea that we will be at odds with the world as a sinful political order. It's like how the statement, our world belongs to God, which we sometimes use for our confession of faith. I love how it puts it at the end. It says, the rule of Jesus Christ covers the whole world, 
the whole world. To follow this Lord is to serve him everywhere without fitting in as light in the darkness, as salt in the spoiling world. And this pretty much you know, summarizes what Jesus is after in our passage as a whole. And with his first response, you know, foxes have their holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's the idea of fitness, of fit, as in people who belong to Jesus will not fit in with the world. We will never really be at rest until, it, until Christ has redeemed all things. So to be fit for the kingdom of God, as Jesus puts it in his final response, is not to fit in with or be at home with the political orders of this world, no matter how good some of them may be, and some of them are pretty good. And when I say political orders, I mean any ordering of people, large or small, where people gather together. So it could be as small as a peewee basketball team or as large as NATO. This means, among other things, that even when we live in a culture that has been deeply affected by Christianity, like ours, that we will still feel tension with it, despite it being the place of our birth. So on the one hand, I consider Greenville my home, even though I grew up in Tennessee and lived there for 25 years and then lived in Missouri for 15 years. This, this is home. But at the exact same time, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not reminded that my commitment to Christ puts me at odds with lots of people in this town. Notice that Jesus didn't tell the man not to follow him. He didn't say, don't follow me. He told the man the cost of following him. So we're left wondering, did the man actually follow? And it's an open question to us as well, and we'll return to that in a minute. Well, in verse 59... Jesus this time calls out to a different man, follow me. And the man in return says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So this time, Jesus calls out to another man, a different man. He's unnamed, and he responds favorably, though he needed to deal with a pressing matter, the burial of his father. So you can only imagine that perhaps as Jesus' entourage is going along, they pass a funeral procession. In response to the man, Jesus says, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So, like with his first response, Jesus is not being literal, as in, don't bury your father, don't care about him anymore. And lots of Christians, again, have mistakenly thought it meant that. That's not what he's after. But rather, he is contrasting himself with the old covenant. He is the author, author of life, the one who raises people from the dead. So to follow him is to have life in the new covenant among the dead who want to keep the old covenant. Again, like with the first man, Jesus was pointing out the tension between those who belong to them and those who do not. And keep in mind, Jesus was speaking to a Jewish man within a Jewish audience. And so the dividing line, the tension, the cost that Jesus points out was not between ethnicities in terms of Jew and Gentile, but between the Jewish people themselves. And the clue to this is how he frames his answer in light of the concerns of the burial. To be unclean was to be marked by death in some way. That's almost entirely the focus of the book of Leviticus. This is why handling a dead body, like with a son at his father's funeral, it would render someone ritually unclean and would in turn require purification. So, for example, here's what Leviticus 19 says 
about handling a dead body. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whosoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel, because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. You can hear the repetition of unclean, unclean, unclean over and over again in that. So handling a dead body, it's no small thing according to the law. And to refuse to engage in the ritual purifications on the third and seventh day, and then to attempt to go into the tabernacle, that is to worship, to have communion with God, would result in that person being cut off from God forever. So in other words, that person would have rejected God's cleansing or his means for cleansing and purposely chosen death instead. So this law is not unlike the symbol we've talked about a couple of times now of shaking the dust off of one's sandals. Dust, too, is a symbol for death. And the point is, whereas the dividing line between clean and unclean, between life and death, was formerly remedied through ritual purification which is what the man assumed needed to happen before he could follow Jesus, at least a seven-day window, the true purification that laws like Leviticus 19 look forward to was found in Jesus himself. Leviticus 19 and just water washing off of death is entirely symbolic, and it pointed forward to the reality of the one to come. That's what's in picture here. So to go a step further, Within the laws concerning the dead, the high priest could not touch the dead even if it was a family member or else he would profane the tabernacle. This is why it was so striking that Jesus could touch the dead or the leprous without becoming impure himself. No, instead of being defiled by touching them like a high priest might, he cleansed them. His righteousness, his cleansing came to them and made them alive. So Jesus, what he's pointing to here in just this, what seems to us just very arcane or very cryptic language, Jesus is the purifying fire of purification and atonement for his people. So to be clean, to have life, was to be washed clean by Jesus himself. Even as to reject him was to remain unclean and marked by death. And that dividing line went right through the middle of the Jewish people. The Jewish people decided, nope, we'll stick with the Old Covenant, thank you very much. They remained in death. If they became disciples of Christ and looked to Him for their atonement and for their purification, they actually had life. So as we talked about months ago, and this has shown up multiple times now in the, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was the dividing line between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And to be His disciple like a son rejecting the purification rituals, which is in view here. Well, culturally, to be his disciple didn't come without cost. In fact, it could be very costly. Even so, notice how Jesus understood what it means then to follow him. To be his disciple was to proclaim the kingdom of God. That does not mean that every disciple of Jesus was to become a pastor or a missionary or a traveling apostle or an evangelist on the corner 
of whatever street, but it does mean that every disciple is marked by Jesus' life. And at the center of our speaking, our confession, the reason for our existence and how we make sense of everything will be Christ and His kingdom. After all, as Scripture repeats over and over again, out of the treasure of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, in verse 61, yet another man said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now, again, like with the first two examples, clearly there is some recognition of Jesus' importance. Two of them have called him Lord, and that Jesus is the head of some kind of populist movement headed towards Jerusalem, which was the center of Jewish religious and national identity. Uh, even so, ancient Jewish culture was very concerned with things like greetings and goodbyes, blessings, salutations, particularly those that were said on the road uh, or when someone first arrived in someone's home or when you were leaving someone's home. So civility and politeness, that is showing honor and respect even to perfect strangers, really, really mattered in Jewish culture. So despite how self-centered and, and rude Americans uh, have become over the last 50 or so years, still we understand this to, to some extent. You know, as we teach our kids, you don't leave a party without first saying goodbye to the host and thanking them for having you. Why? Well, of course it is the polite, respectable, honorable thing to do, but you do it because you want to honor and give thanks to the people who invited you into their home and who fed you and showed you hospitality because they sacrificed for you to enjoy such things. Now, multiply that sentiment by a thousand and, and you've got what's at issue here. This man was willing to follow Jesus, but he needed to act with proper decorum so as not to cause offense within his own home, which most likely would have included multiple generations of family members. And in response, Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Once again, Jesus was pointing out the tension that will occur between his disciples and those who are not his disciples, even within their very homes. And the tension is, is similar to the tension that Lot's wife felt with uh, felt while leaving Sodom because of the coming destruction of that city. Even though she knew death was coming for that place, she hesitated. She looked back, and the judgment, well, it overcame her too. It's telling that even though she knew what was about to hit that place, her desire was torn between what had felt like home to her, no matter how wicked that place was, and by the way, it was also incredibly luxurious too, or else people wouldn't have lived there, and the promise of life safely removed from that judgment. In the end, her hesitation, her looking back, her inability to fully commit to the life before her cost her. It cost her her very life. See, it is impossible to plow a straight line going forward if you are constantly looking behind you. That's what's at image here. So to be Jesus' disciple requires wholeness of heart, which in turn will cause offense, maybe even in everyday interactions like hellos and goodbyes. 
So case in point, in the very next passage, when Jesus sends out the 72, he tells them not to greet anyone on the road, which is a big faux pas. And in turn, he gives them a new greeting when they enter a house. Peace be to this house. Peace from whom? Well, peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point is not, as as some Christians have mistakenly thought, that to be a Christian means to purposely be to be offensive to our unbelieving families, but rather that commitment to Christ is a wholehearted affair, and it very well may be offensive to people within our own homes. So taken together, while the life Jesus offers in himself is absolutely free, it's free to whoever wants it, the cost of following Jesus is no small thing. To follow Jesus is to be, in some regards, an alien in this world, sometimes feeling homeless and isolated, maybe especially among people who are intimately familiar with you and look and sound just like you and who you would consider part of your friend group. It's why Peter describes his people in 1 Peter as sojourners and exiles, even as they lived in the places where they were born. So before Christ, they fit in perfectly well with their hometowns. But after Christ, they became aliens in exiles. The move away from the world into Christ, or as Peter describes it, the move from not God's people to God's people, while it is a move from death to life, is also a move from being at home in this world to being an alien in it. To be Jesus' disciples comes then with the tension of being alive when so much of the world is still dead in their sins, even as the dead certainly don't see it that way and may consider themselves to be good people and perhaps even far more moral than we are. It certainly may mean that by putting Jesus and his kingdom first, his disciples will unintentionally offend people close to them, not because they're trying to be self-righteous or be seen as righteous, though clearly that is a real problem among some of his people, but because... His disciples have listened to his word and centered their lives on him with a wholehearted commitment. And so their standards will be different. And in turn, what they will and will not do will be different too. After all, in that third situation, for the man to refuse to go back to his family and give a proper blessing on his departure did not make him righteous or good in his family's eyes. It made him a jerk. You know, if anything, they probably thought he was dishonoring his parents by way of the fifth commandment. You know, in our own times, to not engage in the world's greetings or self-identified pronouns or political ideologies or simply to refuse to go along with the mob, you know, whether liberal or conservative or simply a group of like-minded individuals, is to risk not merely being seen as a jerk, but to be shunned and excluded. Remember, to follow this Lord is to serve him everywhere without fitting in as light in the darkness, as salt in a spoiling world, which means like Daniel in Babylon, we will always be living with attention of being citizens of the kingdom of God even as we live in the political structures of this world, whether large or small. But Jesus wasn't engaging in scare tactics trying to dissuade these people from being his disciples. He was testing whether they actually wanted Jesus himself. It's similar to what I do in pre-marriage counseling for every wedding I perform. I try to make it as clear as possible that having a romantic view of marriage, while obviously marriages do require some romance, 
having a romantic or idealistic view of marriage itself, it can be absolutely perilous. It could certainly be deadly for a marriage. Marriage, if done right, is one of the greatest institutions for destroying selfishness and self-righteousness. And while it may seem obvious, the reason a marriage endures and deepens is not based on day-to-day feelings, which can be as fickle as our weather, but because each spouse chooses to love and commit to the other with no expectation of benefit. And that's the line where almost every couple trips up. What do you mean? no expectation of benefit. If you pay attention to the vows in a Christian wedding, a spouse commits to the other from the position of self-giving with the expectation that he or she will live for the good of the other. That's Ephesians 5. But consider, what if your spouse's personality is radically changed through a head injury or she is diagnosed with clinical depression that she can't shake for years? or he loses the ability to move from the neck down. Would you still want that person? Would you still want him if you're the one responsible for bathing him and changing his diaper? Would you still want her if she lost all sexual desire? No one seeking marriage should seek it with the question, what do I get out of this? But rather, what can I give to this person? And as an aside, because culturally we pursue dating as an exercise in self-fulfillment instead of self-giving, it is is a rare marriage that does not go through the ringer of, of selfishness for the first year or two or 20. So just as a romantic view of marriage refuses to take seriously the possible cost of committing for life to this very real and flawed person not knowing what may become of him 20 years from now let alone two weeks from now so too jesus tells his disciples to consider the following him while beautiful and life-giving and it is it's the best life there is it may be costly at least as the world measures cost and in some sense i think jesus is laying out the cost to see like like how god tested job to see if these men actually wanted Jesus or were looking for some of the benefit they thought Jesus might be able to give to them. What if the only apparent benefit of knowing Jesus came once you died? And in the the meantime, life was full of suffering. Would you still want to be his disciple? Would you still want him when, like Job, your life is reduced to sackcloth and ashes, your wife tells you to curse God and die, your friends keep trying to suss out a confession of sin from you and blame you for everything that's happened, and all you've got left is a broken body, the grief of dead children, the loss of all your wealth, and what feels like a prayer life where God can't be bothered? You know, there's no doubt in my mind some of you either have gone through that or are going through that right now. And it's hard. But that's sometimes the calling of a disciple. But more often than not, what we find in our circles are not so much Job-like figures, though clearly it happens, and some of you are here right now, but rather like what G.K. Chesterton describes. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So the problem is not that following Christ is bad, it's that the related costs don't seem worth the trouble, and so many people in our circles don't pursue him at all. I think what Jesus exposes in this passage is what 
sociologists call nominal Christians, that is, people who are Christian in name only. Nominal in name only. Nancy Piercy, a, a Christian apologist and actually a fellow alum of my, my seminary, Covenant Seminary, uh, in her recent work, The Toxic War on Masculinity, she describes nominal Christians as people who claim to be Christian but attend church sporadically. The commitment to worship and fellowship with the body of Christ, which is the central defining practice of Christianity as commanded by God, it's, it's irregular or isolated or infrequent, and thus they are Christian in name only. And to see why weekly church attendance and, and commitment to a local body is critical to her definition of what a nominal Christian is, and why she wrote a book-length defense of biblical masculinity, she points to sociological data on men's behavior in the United States. She didn't do this data. She's appealing to someone else, a sociologist who is highly reputable and uses his data. And among all demographics, so that means every demographic in this country, secular, religious, all of it. Men who are committed to conservative, men who are committed conservative Christians who regularly commit to weekly public worship rank as the highest. The highest in terms of not only marriage satisfaction, but in the quality of their marriages. These men make for better spouses, fathers, employers, employees, and have the lowest occurrences of abuse, adultery, uh, desertion, and divorce. They tend to be the most committed to the good of their wives, to the raising of their children, and the amount of time they give to their children, and to the shared welfare of the home, from everything from washing dishes to the financial concerns for the house, all that stuff. And from biblical perspective, if you just read the book of Proverbs, it totally makes sense. Men who are committed disciples of Christ, who have counted the cost and have in turn made the practices and teachings of Christ their priority, while obviously they are not perfect and not without sin and flaws, they make for better husbands and fathers. But consider this, among all demographics, all demographics, nominal Christian men are the worst. And they rank lower even than secular men and in turn have the highest rates of abuse, adultery, desertion, and divorce, far more than their secular counterparts. They are the least committed to the good of their wives, the time they will give to their children, and to the shared welfare of the home. And what Piercy thinks explains this is that while committed conservative Christians self-consciously pattern their time and practices on what the Bible teaches, you know, six days in Sabbath worship and rest, regularly engaging with God's Word among God's people who are also committed to the same things, nominal Christian men do not have these commitments. That means that passages like Ephesians 5 and pre-marriage counseling hit differently for the two groups. So for a committed Christian, when Paul speaks of wives submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives, they read it as Paul teaches in light of Christ, who himself submitted his life to his father and gave his life for his bride, the church. To learn and live by what Paul means in Ephesians 5 takes a long time. And it requires a community of people who are committed to that teaching and are trying to live it out. And what's more, it requires both men and women committed to Christ and each other to demonstrate this truth in word and action. 
Men who have submitted themselves to Christ and His Word, consistently submitting their time to His pattern of six days plus Sabbath, will in turn learn to submit their marriages to what Paul teaches. And if that man is fortunate, he will have been taught this very thing by his own parents from birth within the community of committed disciples. And what modern Americans fail to realize is that no matter what, we are being shaped from birth from the home. No matter what. What's more, there is a cost to everything we do. So there is a cost to committing to weekly gathered worship. There is a cost that nominal Christians do not want to pay. But there is also a, also a cost to not doing it. A cost they don't realize they are paying. Case in point, those men who are nominal Christians tend to only hear Paul say, wives submit to your husbands, or men are the head of their wives, or men are the spiritual heads, and in turn, understand them in terms of sinful or worldly power dynamics such that they will be far more prone to abuse, adultery, and desertion, even as they claim to be Christian and will appeal to the Bible for why they are justified in behaving like this. In other words, they have just enough teaching. Just enough teaching, not merely to be stupid, but to be dangerous and to do real damage to their own lives, but certainly to their wives and children. And if it was not apparent to you before, our part of the country has been deeply affected by Christianity over the last 200 years, even as it is now dangerously nominal. And our church is not immune from that. You know, I recognize there are valid reasons for why people miss on Sunday, sickness in particular. But if you're on vacation or you're gone or you're at the beach, I live in this country too. There's thousands of churches. You ought to look at it as a reprieve from Rob Fawcett. Let's go. To put it another way, I cannot recall a time when every member of this church was gathered together in worship of God. And I've been here a decade. Even at our highest levels, my guess is that we never exceed 75%. And it's worth pondering why that is. You know, to say such a thing is, of course, not unique to church. Every pastor I know in this presbytery says something along those lines, and I've heard it for 30 years. And I don't say this stuff to guilt or shame anyone. I'm simply raising the question that Jesus raises because it's important. You know, are we willing to count the cost of belonging to Jesus? You know, if being fit for the kingdom of God means we will not fit with the world and in turn we will be aliens or, or, or isolated or offensive to family and friends, or worse, that we must submit the pattern of our lives to him and what he commands, are we willing? Are we willing to pay the cost for the sake of knowing Jesus? And keep in mind, you know, I bring up the fourth commandment of Sabbath keeping all the time. Not only because it's fundamental to our life with God, but because it's the low-hanging fruit of discipleship. It's the minimum. You know, if attending church once a week seems restrictive or too legalistic or too high of a cost, things like Paul's teaching on marriage, that absolutely will not happen. It will not. So let me call us together that we should war against the temptation to be name-only Christians. I go on vacation too. I know how it feels.
Let's war against the temptation to be name only Christian and let's, let's call each other to the commitment. Not just me. Let's call each other to the commitment and in turn, let us count the cost of submitting our lives to Christ because he has delighted in us and he has given us life in himself. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. You are so kind. You are so patient. You're the only God who endures with the people lovingly, calling us back again, Sunday after Sunday, day after day, to repent and to find life in you. Thank you for this grace and this mercy that we endure, that we enjoy. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.